Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. How many of us recognize this painting behind the glass here? A few couple, maybe a few. So this is called uh, Trinity by an artist named Andrei Rublev. If it's familiar to you, it might be because uh, Heather and I have a print of it in our house above our uh, fireplace. It's actually, it's based on a story from Genesis chapter 18, where Abraham and Sarah are visited by these three messengers or these three angels. I want to talk about it for a few minutes. And just to be clear, maybe from the outset, for those of you kind of literalists, the artist isn't trying to literally like represent the Trinity and say that this is what God looks like. So Rublev is not saying God looks like this. He's not saying that this is God. He's using a story from Genesis 18 in order to say some things that are helpful uh, about God. So I'd like to notice a few things about the piece, if you'll permit me. Uh, first of all, you notice there are three angels. They're the same size. They're dressed roughly the same. Each of them has uh, bits of blue in their garment. Each of them has wings and a halo. Each of them is holding a rod or a staff. And they're all seated at this table. If you look, in the middle of the table, you see this bowl or a cup. And it's hard, perhaps, to see from where you're sitting, but there's actually the head of a, either a calf or a lamb in, in the bowl, in the cup, that's been sacrificed. And so it looks like what the artist is trying to say is that they're not gathered for a meal, but they're gathered to have kind of a, a memorial, kind of like what we, how, how we celebrate communion. And if it's hard to see the communion cup, perhaps what you might notice is that there is this negative space that's formed by the shapes of the angels that actually creates a larger communion cup. And it seems like the artist is trying to reinforce the idea that, like, within the Trinity, within the Trinitarian life, there is this fellowship, there's this unity and uh, this sharing, and, and even, even like a, kind of almost a table fellowship that the, the persons of the Trinity enjoy. I think that's really cool. Another thing that's worth highlighting, I think, is that the outer forms, the outer shape of the angels creates kind of a circle so that there's, there's unity and there is order and, uh, and there's kind of rhythm to, uh, to, the, to the Trinity. I will say just maybe a, a few things about the, the figures, the actual figures in the, in the piece. I'm going to go left to right, okay? So the one, the angel on the left appears to be the father, trying to represent the father, okay? There's a house behind this angel. Why is that? Because, probably because in the father's house there are many rooms. And it's interesting, this angel on the left is exchanging glances with the angel in the middle. Who's that? Well, it's the son. The angel in the middle is the son. If you look back at the father's clothes, He's got this blue garment underneath. Blue seems to be a color of, of divinity, of deity, but it's wrapped in this larger cloak of some kind of gold or bronze or something. It's actually hard to say what color the father angel is, is wearing because it seems like he's got every color in, in one. Now you notice what the son is wearing. His robe is half brown and it's half blue. And we think it's because what the artist is trying to communicate is how Jesus, how the Son of God had, in his incarnation, he had two natures. He had God and man. 
you can see behind the sun that there is a tree. There's a tree, and that might be a kind of a reference to the tree of life, or maybe a reminder that this is the person who is going to be crucified. This is the, the, that it's the son who was crucified. Now, the angel on the right is the spirit. He's wearing the same blue, quite a bit of that blue that all three of them have, but his blue is also wrapped in green. And some believe that that's because within the Russian Orthodox, within the Russian church, green is the color of the Feast of Pentecost. And Pentecost is the festival where the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. And there happens to be a mountain behind him. You can't see it so well in this, in, in, in this zoomed-in version, but there's a mountain behind the Spirit. And uh, we think that it's because a mountain is where people go to meet God. It's one of those sort of symbolic, metaphorical places where people go to meet God. And when they do, it's the Spirit who meets them. Let me say a word about their hands. Over here on the left, the Father's hands are folded. They're the furthest ones from the cup. He's holding firmly onto his staff or onto his rod. In the middle, you've got the Son. And if you can see his hand, he's, he's got two fingers pointing down to the cup. Again, kind of reinforcing that idea of the two natures of, of God and man. The Spirit's hand, though, the one that's on the table, you can see it. He's, it's on the table, but he's not pointing to the cup or to the bowl. He's actually pointing away from it and down. He seems to be pointing at something else. And we're like, what is that? What's, that? what's going on there? Is that an accident or something? Well, I'll come back to that later. This morning, we begin a new set of studies called Behold Our God. We're studying the attributes of God. We're learning about God and the aim is to learn what God is like, okay? That's what, that's what we're doing this summer. So each week, what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at some of the ways that God is described in Scripture and think about the, the difference that it makes for our lives. Now, a word of caution about a series like this, it would be easy for each kind of, whether me or the other teachers who come up here, to just share a bunch of trivial information. Like, here's just some interesting facts about God, take it or leave it, do what you like. And that's not what this is going to be, okay? Each time we talk or teach about an attribute of God, we actually have an important question we need to answer. The question we need to answer is, what if this were not true? If I'm teaching about God's holiness or God's imminence or God's omnipotence or whatever, whatever the attribute is that I'm teaching it on, what if this thing were not true? Where would that leave us? And if we don't answer that question at the end of every message, uh, we'll have failed. So that's what this is about. I actually think this is going to be super, super helpful. And I will also just draw your attention. There's a phone number at the bottom of the screen. The reason that's there is just as always, as myself or somebody else is teaching, if you have a question that comes to mind, something you want clarified or any kind of question related to the message, we'll just invite you to text it to that phone number. And at the end of the message, whether it's me teaching or somebody else, I'll gather us up and I'll do my best to answer those questions. So that's why that phone number is there. But this morning, we begin with what I think seems to be God's like quintessential attribute. If God has one that is like his core quintessential attribute, it's that God is Trinity, that God is, uh, God is, uh, God is three and he is one. And I'm a big fan of God's holiness. I'm a big fan of God's love. And we will talk about those. But it seems to me that the, the one that most describes who God has revealed himself to be in Scripture is God as Trinity. 
So here's a message on the Trinity if you've never heard one, okay? So first question, what do we mean when we say that God is Trinity? It's our best effort to explain why Scripture says that there's only one God, and yet there are clearly three persons who are called God in Scripture and who do the kinds of things that only God can do. That's what we mean by Trinity, okay? Let me say that again. It's our effort to explain why Scripture can say that there is only one God, and it's also true that there are these three persons in Scripture called God and who do the stuff that only God can do. That's what we mean by the Trinity, okay? And if that sounds complicated, totally understand. You're not alone. The church has actually always wrestled with how to articulate and express what the Trinity means. For example, listen to this. This is from Athanasius, who wrote this in the fourth century. He said, Almighty is the Father, Almighty is the Son, Almighty is the Spirit, and yet there are not three almighty beings, but one who is almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord, and yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. That's what we mean by Trinity, okay? This is not, this is not trivial. This, this actually matters. I don't know if you know this, but families and, and schools and churches have divided over the doctrine of the Trinity. Conflict over the Trinity, over what we mean by Trinity, has put people in prison. It's cost people their lives. You get that? There was actually a time when, depending on what you believe about the Trinity, you could be put to death. So there's a lot of reasons, actually, why the Trinity matters, why it matters what we believe about God as three in one. So what I want to do for a few minutes is show what Scripture says. First of all, let's see how God is God in three persons. We're going to begin with the Father. I just want to share a few verses here. First of all, the Father is God. And probably, as a starting point, that's not a, a big debate, because Scripture often uses the words God and Father interchangeably. Like Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, For us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and for whom we live. The Apostle John says in 2 John, he says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, uh, will be with us in truth and in, and in love. And so his, the, the point here is, clearly, yes, the Father is God. He has like the rank or status of God. But so does the Son. The Son is also God. John begins his gospel by talking about how Jesus is the Word, and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Uh, elsewhere, there, in, in uh, John chapter 20, there's this story of Jesus after being raised from the dead, and Thomas is like, come on, this, this can't possibly be true. He takes his fingers and he touches the wound in Jesus' side, and he's amazed, and, he's, and, and what we read is that Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, and after he says that, Jesus doesn't correct him. Like, it's true. So clearly, Jesus Christ is also God. Now, the third person, the Spirit, he may be the one that you maybe struggle to defend that he is God, but there's a few places in Scripture. I'll just name a couple. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he's talking about this vision where God speaks to him from the temple. He says, I heard the voice of the Lord, and the Lord said, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding. 
be ever seeing but never perceiving. Otherwise, they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So that's in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is saying that God said this, the Lord said this. Well, much, much later, centuries later, in the book of Acts, at the end of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul repeats that same story, repeats that quote, and he says, the Holy Spirit spoke to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing, never understanding, you'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and on and on. In other words, the voice that Isaiah heard, which he called the Lord, Paul says that was the Holy Spirit meaning the Holy Spirit is God. And there's one more spot that I think is, is, is pretty interesting. It's, it's in the book of Acts, again, and there's this story of a husband and wife, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Are you familiar with this story? So they sell their farm, they sell their property, and they take half of the money, half of the proceeds for the sale, and they donate it to the church, and they lie to the church leaders, and they say that they put in the entire thing, the, all of the proceeds from the sale. And the leaders know that they're lying. And so the leaders go to Ananias and Sapphira, and they're like, are, is this everything? Are you sure that you have put in all of the money from the sale? Both of them are like, yep, that's all of it. We are so generous, and all of it is in, in the bowl there. And Peter says in Acts chapter 5, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit what made you think of doing such a thing? Have, you have not just lied to—you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God. And so again, when Scripture talks about this Holy Spirit, when they were talking about Him, He is just as much God as the Father and the Son uh, are also God. So we have these three persons called God in in Scripture. So what is God like? He is God in three persons. And every once in a while, every once in a while, all three show up and they collaborate and do some stuff. Like in Jesus' baptism in Mark 1. Okay? Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he's baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. You've got the voice of the Father. You've got the Holy Spirit descending in the form of a dove. You've got Jesus Christ coming up out of the water. You see the Trinity, the Trinity is at work. Another glimpse of the Trinity is when he sent out the disciples in the Great Commission. He tells them, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So as the disciples go and as they are making, as they're making new disciples, they are baptizing these new disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. One name, one name that includes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's another spot where where it seems like the Trinity collaborates, and it's where the Trinity collaborates to save us. And this is, these are Paul's words in Romans 8. He said, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and if we are children, we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. So the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they collaborate to save us. 
to make us sons, to adopt us as sons and daughters of God. Another one, one more. This is 2 Corinthians 13. This is one of the kind of famous blessings of Scripture. He's blessing the church with a, a Trinitarian blessing where he sort of puts the Father and the Son and the Spirit side by side. And what he says is, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The grace of the, of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, referring to the Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you all. And so in all of these scenes, and there's certainly others we could have named, God shows up and works and collaborates together. So again, what is God like? Well, God has perfect unity within the Godhead, and God does what God does together. He does what God does what God does together. Not like a, a, not like a team, not like a committee, but like a trinity. Because it's also true that the three are one. So check this out. Here's what I think is one of the greatest scenes in all of Scripture that shows how the three are one. It's in John's Gospel in chapter 17, and it's Jesus' high priestly prayer. And it's just Jesus talking to his Father, and it's like we get to eavesdrop on this conversation. We get to listen in, and we get to hear what God says to God when no one else is listening. So I'm just going to read a, a portion of it, and I'm just going to make, I'm going to pause in order to make a couple of comments. It begins, I'm going to begin in, in uh, so John 17, verse 4, where Jesus prays, and he says to his Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So at some point, the Father gave the Son some work to do, and now it's done. Okay. Then Jesus makes a request. Verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with what? With the glory I had with you before the world began. Like before the world began, the Son and the Father, they shared a kind of a glory. There was a kind of a glory that they had in common before there was anything else. And Jesus asks to be glorified with that glory that he had before the world began. Now, we'll jump down a little bit later in verse 21, where Jesus prays for us. He, he prays that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, again, that's a prayer for us. That's a prayer for our unity, that we would be one, just in the same way that the Father and the Son are one. And that's really important, because if the Father and the Son aren't one, if that's just an exaggeration or an overstatement, or if he's just being, like, you know, poetic or using, like, some kind of rhetorical flourish or something, that prayer means nothing. But his prayer is that we can be one. And how can we be one? How is it possible that we who are many can be one? It's possible because the Father and the Son are also one. And so we can be a community. We who are, are from all kinds of different backgrounds and traditions and languages and stuff, we can be one. We can be in community together as one in community because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are also a community. You with me on that? In the same way that God is a community, Jesus prays that we would be a community. In fact, he goes on in verse 24, he prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me, because you loved me before the creation of the world. 
You love me before the creation of the world. So here's something else that is shared between the Father and the Son before the creation of the world. We've seen that there was glory. Now we see there's also love. They loved each other before the creation of the world. Before you and I were born, before our parents were born, before, there was, before the city of Hamilton existed, or Canada for that matter, before there was a planet Earth or a universe or any created thing, there was glory and there was love moving back and forth between the Father and the Son. In fact, some theologians say that that glory and that love that's moving back and forth between the Father and the Son is the person of the Holy Spirit. That blows my mind. It blows my mind. So what is God like? God is three and God is one. He is God in three persons. Now, it's interesting, you know, that the early church had a word for how God relates to God. It was a Greek word, perichoresis. Perichoresis. It's the same, it's got the same root from which we get our word choreography. Like if you go to a Greek wedding, you might see a circle of people who join hands and they dance around in a circle and they spin around and they weave in and out and they come close together and they move far apart and they speed up and they slow down and and uh, they stay joined together at the hand and, and sometimes it can actually be hard to see who is who but there's a rhythm and there's a pattern to this dance it's really really beautiful and when the early church needed a word for god as three in one the word that they came up with was this metaphor of the dance they used the word perichoresis just to express how the persons of the Trinity relate to each other. It's a, it's a dance. And so listen to this from, from uh, Pastor Tim Keller. I love this. He says, Each of the divine persons centers upon the other. None demands that the other revolves around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves and adores, defers to, and rejoices in the others. It creates a dynamic, a dynamic pulsating dance of joy and love. I just love that. Uh, one more quote. This is from a Catholic named uh, Richard Rohr. I know some of you are familiar with Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr studied the Trinity at, at great length. He, even, he wrote a book about Trinity. He even included some references to the same painting that I was talking about earlier. And he says, at the heart of Christian revelation, God is not seen as a distant, static monarch, but a divine circle dance, as the early church, as the early fathers of the church dared to call it. God is the Holy One, presenced in the dynamic and loving action of, of three, but even this threefulness doesn't like to eat alone. Even this threefulness doesn't like to eat alone. Doesn't like to eat alone. What is Richard Rohr talking about? What does he, what does he mean? I think what he means is, in biblical terms, what we say by eternal life. We spoke about this last week. In biblical terms, when Jesus talks about eternal life, the life of the age to come, and he's praying about it. In fact, in, John, in the same passage we just looked at, John chapter 17, verse 3, he's praying in the garden for us to have this eternal life. And he says, this is eternal life. This is that life of the age to come that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, that's what eternal life is. Knowing God is what we're talking about when we, when, we talk, when we say the life of the age to come. It's knowing this God who is three in one. 
This God who is an, an eternal, unbroken community, he invites us to know him. He invites us to his table. Okay? Now, earlier when I showed you this, when I showed you this painting of Rublev's Trinity, uh, what I didn't say is what a scandal it actually was in the art community at first. And there's a few reasons for that. One of the reasons why it was such a scandal is because Rublev takes Abraham and Sarah out of the painting altogether. So you wouldn't know that it's actually a story about Genesis 18. Another problem with it, the Russian Orthodox Church had just made a rule saying no images of God. In fact, they, the, it's interesting. The Russian church had said, over in the West, in, in Europe, in, like in France and Italy and Spain and stuff, when they paint God, they insist on painting the spirit as a dove, and the spirit is not a dove. He appeared as a dove, but he's not a dove. They keep painting the father as this old man with a big gray white beard, and that's not who the father is. And so the Russian Orthodox Church says, this isn't accurate. Uh, and so no more images of God. They made this rule. And right after that, here comes Rublev, Andrei Rublev, and he paints this painting of the Trinity, and he takes these angels, and he calls this picture of these angels Trinity. It's brilliant. And so it was a problem for that reason. But perhaps the, the biggest reason why this painting was a problem is because it seems unfinished. It, it seems like there's some mistakes in here that Rublev should have been able to catch. Like, if you notice, there's too much space up front. Each person has their spot at the table. You can see that with, the, with the, the circle that I've drawn here. You can see that each person has their spot around the table, and there's this great big empty spot at the front of the table. In fact, critics first saw this painting, and they thought he messed up because his perspective is, is all wrong. Like normally when you, ex when you look at a painting, you expect that the stuff that's closest to you is going to be very, very big, and the stuff that's further away is going to be very, very small. But Rublev does the opposite. And the stuff that's further away from the viewer is the stuff that's big. And the stuff that's closer to the viewer, that's the stuff that appears small. So when that happened, a lot of the, the art community, they were like, Rublev doesn't know anything. This is terrible art. It's, it's amateurish. And then they realized it's actually quite intentional. In fact, if you look at the angel on the right, who we think is the, the angel representing the Holy Spirit, if you look at his hand, he's pointing down. This spirit is pointing down. He's pointing at this blank, at this empty space. He's pointing to you, the viewer. He's pointing to you, the viewer. And, and the result is this. As the, the lines of the perspective in this painting, as they sort of converge, what you've got is that the focal point isn't behind the painting, like in most art. The focal point is actually in front of the painting. The focal point of the art is actually the viewer. Isn't that incredible? I mean, if when you're there and you're standing there and you, real, you, you see the ways that the, pers the perspective lines converge on you, it puts you at the center of this thing. And, and what, what Rublev is not saying, what he's not saying is that you and I are members of the Trinity. Okay? He's not saying that we are God, but we are invited to his table. He's saying there's an empty spot up front, and the Holy Spirit himself says, come on up, join us, join us at the table. Isn't that beautiful? And that's what God is like, okay? That's what God is like. Is God a, a one-man show? 
Is God like a, a far-off judge who could give a rip about whether we believe in him or not? Is God a, a, like a committee who can't get anything done like in, the, in some of the pagan religions in the ancient world? No. No. God is one and God is three. God is one and God is three. And God is our model for how we relate to one another in community. We who are many, we who are diverse, we can be one because God is three and God is one and he invites us to know him. He invites us to know him. In fact, what I'll share as I close is this. Same section of John's gospel, just before he's arrested, he goes out to pray, uh, just before he goes out to pray in the garden, Jesus is around the table and he can tell that the disciples are upset and they're afraid because they know that he's going to be gone soon. They know that he's leaving them. Now, how does John, how does Jesus reassure the disciples who are, who are upset and scared? How does he reassure them? He reassures them with Trinity, with the doctrine of the Trinity. He tells them, this is John 14, verses 25 to 27, Jesus promises the disciples who are upset and scared, nervous and anxious, he says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You guys, the doctrine of the Trinity, this is not just some like interesting dogma or, you know, theological trivia or something like that. There is no such thing as community except for the Trinity. Okay? There's no such thing as community if not for the Trinity. But because God is three and God is one, Jesus Christ says, peace, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. That, friends, is what God is like. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.